Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. Today, my guest is Libby Walness. And Libby is such a down-to-earth, sweet human being. She said multiple times during the interview about the importance of being kind, not just grounded and centered and embodied. I think all of us would agree that those are qualities that we strive to have, but also coming to life with a sense of gentility, of sweetness, of kindness, of compassion. And I think as you get to know Libby in this interview, if you don't know her already, you'll see that sweetness coming through. And I think this is oftentimes forgotten about in yoga. And I think it's a really, really important thing that, of course, many of us are social justice warriors. We want to see change in the world. We want to see good things happening. We want to make sure that people are not getting hurt. And I think there should also be an ahimsa or a nonviolence towards self and towards others. I think there's a way to have good boundaries, to protect people, to be strong, and at the same time, be kind and compassionate and learn how to listen to one another and be in relationship. So I think you're going to enjoy this interview. We're going to talk all about self-confidence and worthiness and how those things are actually an embodied state. They're not a mental state, although they can partially be a mental state, but the solution to feeling more confident and to feeling worthy and to feeling authentic comes from a state in your body. So I hope you enjoy this interview and welcome to Libby Wellness. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. We're so glad that you've joined us today. Our episode today is meant to inspire you and empower you. We are so appreciative that you've helped the Yoga Therapy Hour have 100,000 downloads. Season six is going to be the best one yet. And we are so grateful to you, our listeners. Let's go to the show. Welcome, Libby. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So Libby, where are you joining us from? What land are you on? I'm in the United States and I'm in Houston, Texas. So it's autumn here and it's starting to get a little cooler and cloudier. It's pretty nice here right now. Good. So today, I think we're going to explore and meander through themes of self-doubt and anxiety and feeling confident and embodied. Is that what you're excited about talking about today? That's what I'm excited about right now. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's just start from the beginning. What makes you excited about that? What makes you want to share this message with people? I think it's because more than anything, because we teach what we need to learn. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that has been an issue for me my entire life. I think that when we think about what confidence is, it's really a trust, you know, a trust in yourself for self-confidence or perhaps a trust in the world. And depending on what your experience has been growing up or what kind of system you live in, you may or may not have that. And I've find for various reasons, I tend to fall kind of on the end of not trusting myself. And one of the things that helps me the most with that was my yoga practice. Mm. And 
I've been teaching yoga for a while, about 17 years now, and I've been doing yoga therapy for not so long. I'm a baby yoga therapist, just a couple of years. But every time I have a, a student or a client I work with in depth, I find that the thing that tends to make the most difference is when they learn that they can trust themselves. They can trust the process and they can trust that whatever the outcome is, it will be helpful in some way, you know, as long as they put right effort into what they're doing. So I think that the tools of yoga to help us learn to trust ourselves can really open the door to a lot of progress in a lot of other ways. And for today, I was trying to use that on myself. You know, I was coming to this interview going, my gosh, I'm coming to a platform that's heard surgeons out of Harvard and best-selling authors and people who worked in the field for 40 years. And who am I? I'm nothing. Why should I be? So I had to do a little practice so that I could sit still and speak and you know it helps and so i think that this is a really useful way to frame confidence in a practical way where people can have tools where they can try to gain it in their life it's so interesting because you mentioned a couple of teachings of yoga let's just kind of pull them out the first being not to get caught up in our identity if we are a surgeon or went to harvard or we have a new york times bestseller that that is actually not who we are it may be a wonderful gift we give to the world but Really, Libby Walness, Amy Wheeler, and all of those people, we have inherent value just by being us and showing up as us. And I love that about yoga, that it's not about, you know, climbing some social ladder or financial ladder or, you know, being a rock star. It's like, you're enough just how you are in this moment. So any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one thing that we can learn, not just from practicing yoga and changing how we interact with the world, but also in studying philosophy of yoga, we can learn that we're all connected. Whether you take that as, you know, we're all one in God or all one in spirit, or if we're all one in nature or quantum thingies, I don't know, you know, in some level we're all connected. So whatever you do will have ripple effects. Yeah. And if you're acting from a place of softness and kindness and true goodwill, then whatever ripple effects you create are doing good in the world. And you don't know how big that could become in yeah. somebody else's life. So whatever you're doing, it is enough. Yeah. And then the other theme that I heard you talk about, and I'd love to hear more is about giving right effort and trusting the process. What do you mean by that? Because I think that's also a very yogic way to approach life. Well, I guess the words right effort, I'm, maybe the Buddhists will come and say that's ours. <laughs> um, and I don't know enough to speak about that. But I mean that just if you're trying, you know, with good intention and you've set yourself on a path and that doesn't have to mean a big highfalutin, you know, yogic, I'm so spiritual, look at me. No, I don't mean like that. But that you have decided you're going to make some kind of change. And no matter how small the first step is, you're doing that thing. And as long as you maintain your intent, you know, being wholesome, mm. non-harming, for example, then you can trust that the result will be good on whatever level it needs to be. Yeah. I think we're all looking for that thing we're going to do next or achieve or be or become. But I keep coming back to this in my life. If the joy isn't in the process, in the actual journey of going wherever we're going, I think we're kind of missing out on the whole point, maybe. 
Yeah. And I think a big part of the work that I do, you know, bringing in a lot of embodiment practices is to help people kind of become more aware of where they are in the moment and what they need right now. I think a lot of times we start with a goal and it's a goal that's five steps away from where we are now. And we think we're going to do practices that are appropriate for that time, Mm. but they're not actually appropriate for this time. You know, I guess the path would just be figuring out what's happening right now. And that's going to be different every day. So if we're working to change something, we have to start where we are and know that it's okay where we are. So you're an embodiment coach. You're also a yoga therapist and you've been doing studies with the Minded Institute out of the UK. Why don't you just start by framing for us, like, what is the work that you do? I think I'm interested to hear more about embodiment coaching. Well, I'm not a coach accredited by, you know, a major body like ICF, but I do bring in elements of embodiment coaching. And I learned most of that from a course certification of embodiment coaching from Embodiment Unlimited, which is a great organization with a lot of different teachers and trainers. But I got into that because I have been a yoga teacher since 2005, and I mostly taught Bikram yoga. Mm. which as a lot of people listening will probably know is very kind of rigid in the way that it's presented and the way that it's training their teachers. So I kind of spent a lot of time cognitively teaching, you know, I was scanning the room for anomalies, correcting the shapes of the postures. And when I kind of realized 12 years later, Hey, I am kind of stunted as a teacher. I'm not really sure how to help somebody who doesn't respond well to these particular words. What do I do? So I got certified to teach a couple other styles. And one of my teachers in the ghost yoga group told me, you need to teach from a more embodied place. Mm-hmm. But how do I do that? She said, I don't know how you're going to do that. I don't know what to tell you. So I got on the Google, you know, and I found the embodiment conference online. And so I thought I'll do this. I got embodiment coach training. And really I have to say the things that I use that tend to help yoga therapy clients the most are embodiment tools, such as grounding and centering and things that are used in yoga therapy, but with some techniques that I had not encountered before in yoga teacher training. And that I didn't really encounter in in yoga therapy training, even though they're kind of coming at the same goal of getting grounded, getting centered, being in the moment while being able to regulate. And so I took that embodiment training into my yoga therapy work. I got certified as a yoga therapist just gosh, a year and a half ago with Essiasa USA, which is a wonderful organization. Their center here in Houston with Smith Malaya, who's my teacher, works closely with MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is a major hospital. Some of your listeners will know Lorenzo Cohen's name, who works in integrative medicine. You know, And I think really that's kind of the next step where yoga therapy is going. So that's kind of a cool blending of really traditional Indian practices and teachings with modern medicine and research. And then with the Minded Institute, I just wanted to take a little more training with Heather Mason's diploma because I want to work mostly in mental health myself. So thank you for sharing all that with us, because I think there's so many people out there that are combining modalities, right? But I really want to go back to, for our listeners, and define what does it mean to be grounded or centered or regulated? And why is that important? It's really important if for no other reason than for safety, first of all, because the yoga practices 
whether it's movement or holding a posture or doing breath work, particularly breath work, you know, or meditation, visualization, anything like that will affect how your nervous system responds. So if you are not starting out practices from a place of calm, steadiness, sense of security, safety, you could become really dysregulated and that could become at least uncomfortable and at worst dangerous for people. Not that these are dangerous practices, but if there's something going on in your mind, it could put you over an edge. You don't want to go over. So regulation, as most of your listeners will know on some level, even if they haven't put words to it before, would mean that you are able to contain, you know, the feelings that are coming up in your body. And it's not to mean that you don't feel agitated or you never feel scared or anything like that, but just that you're able to be with that feeling and bring it down as much as you need to in order to stay present and stay safe and stay alert, but not alarmed by what's going on. So in kind of more technical language, we would say it means that you are calming your sympathetic nervous system bringing up your parasympathetic nervous system, invoking a relaxation response in your nervous system so that you come out of the fight and flight response and get more into a calm state. So that's regulation. And one of the tools that's used all the time to reach that sort of regulated state is grounding, which could mean different things for different people, but generally it means literally physically bringing your attention down toward the ground or whatever surface is supporting you to the lower part of the body. And the idea is kind of mentally that you're connecting yourself with something stable, right? And supporting. And physically, that you are bringing your attention to parts of your body, like the legs, big muscles that propel you. If you can kind of stimulate those a bit, that can make your nervous system know that you have the power to get out of the situation if you really need it to. And you have the power to, I don't know, kick the saber-toothed tiger away and fight your way out if you need to, that you have the ability to make yourself safe. And so mentally and physiologically, it can be really helpful. That's often combined with centering, which is like grounding, but and usually incorporates grounding, but also involves bringing attention to the center line of the body, bringing attention to relaxing around the eyes, the jaw, the chest, the abdomen, bringing the breath down toward the abdomen. So there's kind of a relaxation and an attention brought to a, a center point, a still point in the body. And that can be really calming as well and kind of bring the attention inward. I don't know if our listeners have put this together, that these are the tools and techniques that help you when you have social anxiety or you're feeling like you're not very confident or you're feeling like massive social anxiety that that right there in the moment, if you had learned these techniques, you could practice them while at the party or while in the work environment. Is that kind of the point that you would learn them on the yoga mat or in the embodiment room? And then you could just do it on the spot when you're starting to feel anxious? That's absolutely the idea. And the whole point of doing it as a practice is that you practice it at a dedicated time, at a neutral time, at a set time, preferably so that, you know, your system starts to associate it with being in control, being safe, being calm, having that relaxation response, just be able to be summoned up at will. And so that means that when you're in a stressful situation, you can just put yourself in that body posture, start that attention moving to the ground, to the center of the body, to the breath, 
and your whole system goes, oh yeah, we recognize this. This means that we're safe. Oh, I guess it is okay. And it will, we're kind of using conditioning to our advantage. You know, we're kind of conditioning ourselves in a little bit of a way so that when you have that practice established, you can have access to that tool when you're in a stressful time. Whereas if you just learn it and leave it aside, so I know how to do that. It's not really going to work the same way because you're already agitated at that point. And then, but if you practice it, probably first with a teacher so that you are staying safe and then doing it on your own, it becomes more automatic and you can call it up when you need to. And like I called it up today, I tell you what, I did so much breathing before this interview because I was so nervous and then it works. I mean, it just simply works. So yeah, you let it. How long would someone need to practice it every day? Like is it 10 minutes, 15 minutes? It kind of depends on the person you know, as anything in yoga therapy, you'd say it depends, right? But for a lot of people, you can get benefit in just five minutes to make a shift from where you were. You know, if you start out and say, "Mm, I'm going to check in, I'm going to take 30 seconds, be still sitting, check in what is happening in the body. Okay. I am beating my heart really fast. I am breathing my breath really high, overly shallow. That means gosh, what would I rather feel? I would rather feel my breath be slow. I'd rather feel my heart be slower, calmer. Okay. So that check-in is good. That's like less than a minute. It could take a lot of practice with the t-shirt to get to the point where you feel safe enough and attuned enough to do that. But once you're able to do that, it takes a tiny bit of time. And then you can say, okay, what would I need to do? All right. I learned that this kind of breathing calms me down. For me, I like coherent breathing, which is six counts in, six counts out, which has been shown by research to get your nervous system balanced. That takes about a minute to start kicking in. You want 10 minutes to get really good effect with that. So that can take some time. Other people, it calms down super quickly. Other people will do Brahmari Pranayama, which I also love, which is making that humming sound, which will calm you down real fast. Do three rounds of that and it'll calm you down real fast. So it'll depend on the person, but these are practices that you can do really easily anywhere. You can do the coherent breathing wherever you are. Nobody will know. You won't look weird. You won't look like a woo-woo yoga nut. You can just sit and breathe slowly, you know, and it's fine. Or you can sit and press your feet into the ground, or you can sit and relax your eyes, your jaw, your abdomen. Mm. And it will help you no matter where you are. I love things that you can just do in public and nobody can see. I think it's so powerful to use your mind to regulate your nervous system. And then of course your nervous system being in regulation helps you to control your mind. It's kind of working both ways. So you told me that almost everyone that you work with, you teach them these techniques. It's something that a lot of people need. Is that because you specialize in mental health and anxiety? Or do you just find even people with back pain that come to you or just random teenagers? Do all of us need this? I think all of us need this. And I think even people who tend to not be really agitated, you know, there are people who are just kind of more steady and, you know, they're not really jazzed up all the time. Even they may need it because they may be avoiding things, you know, and they maybe need to feel a little safer to approach life with a little more energy. And that means you need to be able to regulate as you move toward that if they want to. But most people I see, whether it's in a Bikram Yoga class I'm teaching at a studio or whether it's in a private yoga therapy session or whether it's in a you know yoga therapy group class for the hospital, most of the people need to 
if not in that class, then in their life need to find a way to bring themselves back into calm and relaxation after they've been agitated or while they're being agitated and learning that kind of oscillation between agitation and relaxation is honestly, I think the key, the bedrock, if you only get one thing out of yoga therapy, that should be the thing because that's how we manage stress. And stress is the biggest cause of all non-infectious diseases. I think the main thing that yoga therapy can help in terms of health for anybody, whether it's mental health or physical health. So it's hard to bring that into some kinds of yoga class environments, but it can be, especially in a class where you practice asana and then you relax and then you practice again and then you relax. Or if it's in a personalized yoga therapy session, we can go much deeper and Mm. more individualized, but it's still the same principle. You know, you just said something that I don't really go to group yoga classes anymore because I just don't, I don't know. I like to do what I know works for me, but in general, I love that idea of do some postures, then relax, do maybe coherent breathing or some ratio, and then do a little more and then relax. I think that does train the nervous system to activate, deactivate, activate. And those rest periods, some people get very annoyed. Like, what are we doing? How come we're just laying here? You shouldn't be going to the next posture. But I think those are the people that actually need to learn how to let their nervous system oscillate in and out of activation and relaxation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is something that, I mean, say what you will about Bikram yoga and it's parent lineage, gosh yoga. That is a principle that is taught there. It is taught to activate you're holding still, but you are going hard, you know, and then you stop, you either stand or you lie down. And in the more traditional yoga postures, second half of that class, you're lying down between every posture, taking Shavasana. And depending on the teacher, more attention could be brought to that relaxation. And there can be a little psychoeducation. You know, the teacher never shuts up in those classes, which can be irritating on its own, but that's a learning on its own. And you can say, here's what you're doing. You are training your nervous system. The reason we have this stillness between all the postures is for that purpose. And so even though it's not very individualized, it still has that benefit for everybody. I am so happy to announce that our Optimal State mobile app is now up and functioning well. Some of you were part of our beta program and we appreciate your feedback so much. But now the Optimal State 2.0 mobile app is ready and it's working well. This app can help you track the different states of your nervous system, and it can give you feedback about how your nervous system is functioning from 2 to 6 a.m., 6 to 10 a.m., 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. You can see the patterns and what's happening inside of you based on the data. In addition, we give you interventions and ways you can bring yourself into a balance. Very soon, we're going to be adding live classes and recorded classes so that you can actually interact with us and turn a yoga nidra on in the middle of the night or take a class with us. That's coming soon. For now, we'd love for you to try three weeks free and see if the Optimal State app can't make a difference for you. Just go to the app store on iPhone or Android and type in optimal state and it will pop up. You can download it for free and we'd love to see that it's helping you and your loved ones that you recommend it to. And as we said, very soon we're going to have classes. So enjoy the first three weeks, our gift to you. I think that psychoeducation component about why we're here, what's happening to the nervous system, why that's important 
I just wish every yoga teacher would learn about the autonomic nervous system, that we're not just getting a workout. We're not just putting ourselves mm-hmm. into the sympathetic response, you know, to sweat and lose weight and, you know, almost like a run, but there's something much deeper going on, hopefully in a, a group or small yoga class. Anytime. Yeah, but it can be a really good way in the group classes, especially really awesome, a heavy workout mindset Asana classes can be a great way into this sort of thing because a lot of people come to them and they don't know how to relax and they think that exhaustion is relaxation because they never were taught how to regulate. I wasn't, I wasn't co-regulated with, so I never learned how to self-regulate. You know, as a child, I would spin around in circles screaming until I literally fell asleep because I was exhausted. You know, that happens. But I think so many people grow up like that. And in many ways, in much more intense situations, and they never learned how to self-regulate because no one taught them, no one did it with them. And so the only time their system was not totally overwhelmed and overloaded was when they had crashed and they were exhausted. And so now they think, well, if I'm not on, then that means I'm exhausted. So if I want to relax, I better go work out really hard. And we don't have to do that. And a great yoga class that starts out super sweaty and difficult could be the way to learn that actually you could relax before you were exhausted. I just said that I was being interviewed on a podcast this morning and she was kind of poo-pooing the exercise yoga. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, (laughs) that's somebody's way in. Let's meet up where they are and teach them about the nervous system and co-regulation as well as self-regulation. And I, I love what you said about as a child. And I think for most of us all the way up until we discovered yoga, we didn't know there was such a thing as learning to regulate yourself. You just like an energizer bunny went and went and went until your battery wore out. Yeah. <laughs> and that's normal. And that's normalized anyway. That's how people do. And that's certainly how we kind of glorify success, at least material success, you know, that you get ahead by working as hard as you can and hustle and grind. I think there's a movement away from it right now. And I think yoga is a big part of that, or at least some yoga figures are a part of that. I've heard some people say that learning to rest is revolutionary. Yeah. You know, it's not lazy. Right. So that kind of ties us back into our original premise here, though, about worthiness, about self-confidence. We have this culture, this hustle culture that says you've got to work till you drop in order to be enough, in order to make money in order to have your fame or whatever you're looking for in the world. And at the same time, I hear you saying, look, there's another way to have self-confidence. There's another way to have worthiness. You don't have to go until you drop. You can tune into maybe some internal wisdom and that can be the basis of your self-confidence or your worthiness. Yeah. I think that a lot of times we get caught up. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I seem to get that. Well, I know I get that feedback from clients and from students too, that they kind of gauge their worthiness based on feedback from outside, whether that's if they got the job, got the money, got the partner or whatever, got the followers and the likes, that's what made us valuable. Those things that we're getting externally. But if you looked inside and said, what is the thing that's valuable about you? Sometimes people have a hard time, you know, coming up with that. And that's something you can do. And you could do that just cognitively. You can do that. You know, there's been experiments on that where people are asked to write down their vain value or their main quality that makes them themselves and couldn't be taken away. And that's been shown to have a calming effect and then a 
kind of energy boosting, a confidence building effect. But if you can't access that, if you can't do that mentally, how do you do it? And a way to do it really is to start to learn to trust your body. And the first step in that is to be able to communicate with the body. I mean, we can talk about in theory, there's no split between body and mind, but if your like lived experience, your reality right now is, then let it be that. If you think that there's a split between your body and mind, then at least let them talk to each other and learn to experience, okay, this is what my body's telling me right now. And that's something that yoga therapy can, I think is uniquely suited to do because it can work bottom up from the body or top down from the mind or both together. And that's really where it stands out as a therapy, because you can start to regulate, feel safe, learn to ground and so forth. And then you can feel secure enough to start to look inside, inquire inside and become aware of what's happening in the body right now. What are the sensations? What are the emotions? What am I doing? My teacher at Embodiment Unlimited would say, what am I doing in my body? You know, not what is the body doing, but what am I doing in my body as an integrated being? How do I tell this from what my body is expressing? And then that can become a source of intuition. And in yoga therapy, we would say it's not that your body is telling your mind, it's that your mind body is telling you something, that it's all one thing, that we have that sort of mental level, you know, this mental expression throughout our being, including in our body. Our body has that manomaya kosha. It's not just abstract thought. It's everything your body's telling you. And when you deliberately key into that while you're practicing, you key into it with attention on purpose, you know, mindfully with no judgment, your brain starts to change. I've learned a lot from Heather Mason, of course, at the Mind Institute about neuroscience. And, you know, it, it's a kind of basic level that I understand and I'm sure, but it's helpful to know that when you are initiating new movements, you're planning new movements, you are deliberately choosing exertion, and you're then giving your body sensory feedback from that in a safe, mindful, grounded way, then you change your brain and you raise the volume and the function of your hippocampus so your memory gets more reliable, your sense of self gets raised because you're improving your insula in your brain, your way of perceiving yourself, your body, your accuracy in interpreting signals, your ability to reappraise those signals, all these things get better with yoga. And so you become more and more able to tell what's happening in your body. And when you know you can trust what you're hearing from your body, then that becomes self-trust. And when you feel like you can trust inside yourself, then you feel like you can have more confidence in the choices that are coming out of that inner awareness, you know? And when you have confidence in those choices, then you will be better at setting boundaries, which is going to bring your stress level down no matter who you are, <laughs> because then you're taking care of yourself. So let me try to summarize yeah. a lot of what you just said. That that was a lot of really high level, amazing information and I think a lot of people, when they think of mental health, they're literally thinking about what is between their ears is causing them to not feel happy or not feel confident or not feel worthy or feel anxious or depressed or traumatized that I think most people and probably the, the way that psychology has been set up for decades is that we have to work on it, you know, cognitively reformat with cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy. Like you have to do something about your brain and how it's working. 
And what I'm hearing you say is just the opposite. You're saying, let's pay attention to the sensations in the body. Let's start to explore that. Let's start to understand what you feel in your tummy or your quadriceps when you're doing a squat or your heart rate or your body temperature, like really having more interoceptive awareness of the sensations in your body and learning to trust that. And it's from that body approach that your mind will shift. Is that a good summary? I think that's a good summary. And thank you for that. I think that's a good summary because a lot of times we tend to think, okay, I'm going to kind of power through. I'm going to muscle over it. I'm going to, you know, control this thing, which is me, which is my body. And it's like, I am going to control it, but it's like, you are your body. So that's not going to work. You can't muscle over it. At some point that stress of doing that will come out. So if you actually listen to it and give it what it needs and realize it is you, it will tell you what it needs. And then you can always bring in the higher level stuff. Reflecting journaling is a big part of yoga therapy too, for a lot of people. And that can take you farther and farther. But that felt sense, that lived experience of feeling anchored and secure, which is to say trustful, that comes from the body because it's opposite fear, insecurity that comes from the body too. <laughs> this is where DBT is great because it acknowledges that the physiological root of emotion. This is not just a thought. Yeah. And especially with say a trauma history, DBT is not going to cut it because you can't just gaslight yourself into feeling better. Oh no, it's actually okay. Well, no, it's not okay. My body's telling me it's not okay. So you have to start in the body before the thoughts can kind of come into line. Libby, I think a lot of times when someone thinks of worthiness or being able to trust themselves, they think of it as a mental construct. Hmm. What I hear you saying is that it's an embodied way of being. Yes. I think for most people, it has to be for it to be sustained because you can maybe cognitively reframe certain things, certain situations, but kind of as a way of being in the world, that needs to happen on a more fundamental level. And I think that you need to give your body a really strong physiological message of safety before you can even start to explore what's really inside, what kind of values are really there. And even in yoga philosophy, this is an interesting thing because we think about maybe not everybody's into yoga philosophy, but for those who are, this can be a great hook into it. In Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, when he talks about, in the second chapter on practice, he talks about, you know, sometimes getting full of doubts, right? And the word he uses is vitarka, and that's associated with like reasoning and analyzing and deliberating and using the, you know, the mind. But sometimes this is translated as, you know, negative thoughts or contrary thoughts, bad thoughts, but it also can be doubts. And I like using that translation as doubt. I have a doubt. And, you know, if you take class with an Indian teacher, you'd be like, I have a doubt. You know, I have a question. I need to understand better. I don't quite get it. So this kind of thing, like doubt is a feeling, right? Not just a thought. And so when Patanjali talks about how to overcome the doubts, maybe like self-doubt, maybe even that could be expressed that way. He says what needs to happen is cultivation of the opposite. And, you know, in the Sanskrit, a lot of people listening will know others will be like, okay, Sanskrit, but it's just two words, right? Pratipaksha Bhavanam. And it means cultivate the opposite. And Buddhists will talk about Bhavanam, not as a thought. And because Patanjali was apparently probably pretty influenced by same ideas that Buddhists are influenced by. I think it's valid to bring that in. 
Buddhists will talk about bhavanam as a state, you know, a state of tranquility, calmness, or a state of clarity. And that's not just a thought, that's a way of being, you know, it's a state of being. So you can cultivate a different, not just thought, but emotion, quality, way of being. And you can do that with practices, bottom up practices. And it's so interesting because when I'm really suffering, it's not just a cognitive, I mean, there are ruminating thoughts, right? But even more so, it's like my body hurts. It's like my heart is getting scrunched or my body just feels tight and unhappy. And so I think what you're saying that this is not just thoughts, it's it's a state, a state of being this suffering. And that if the problem is happening because it's in your body, well, then the solution can come through your body. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it is in your thoughts, you know, even if it is something that is truly conscious belief, you know, or an actual thought, you can still perhaps get your body to get your mind calmed down enough to where the thought can change. So otherwise you're just kind of spinning, like you said, rumination. And again, yoga is so great for bringing rumination down, whether it's with strong asana, you know, because you can't pay attention to a ruminating thought. If you're holding bridge pose for five minutes, you just simply can't, (laughs) you know, or if you're moving through a flow, or if you are, you know, deeply engaged in a body scan, because that's your thing. And your attention is moving from part to part, whatever, or a breath practice, it can all stop that spinning and stop that, you know, that doubt. And I think that it is the doubt of ourselves of the opposite of, of confidence. So when you, again, bring safety to the body to hear what it's saying, you can trust yourself, maybe first just the physical body and then come to learn that, okay, well, when my body responds well to what I'm telling it to do, maybe whatever is in me that's telling it to do these things is also worthy of trust. Okay. So then maybe the choices that come out of that are also worthy of trust. So maybe I can trust that I'll show up in the world in the right way, you know, in the safe way, in the constructive way and an authentic way, an authentic way and, and not have to hold on to it so tightly and not have to watch yourself all the time. And, oh, 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 am I doing it right? Well, yeah, because whatever you're doing has to be right because you're doing it. I'm thinking about so many people that have some neurodiversity that they just always felt like they didn't fit in and socially if they are authentic and they be true to themselves, they're going to upset everyone around them. What do you think about that? Is that okay? If that's our state of being that we just happen to irritate people by being who we are, is that okay? (laughs) Well, I think, first of all, I'm really looking forward to next year when I know you're planning to bring material on neurodiversity more into your kind of content offerings. That's great. As a person with multiple diagnoses, some of which I talk about in public and some of which I don't, yeah, that speaks to me really strongly. We mask. That's a thing. It's known as masking or camouflaging, particularly in the autistic community, but also to some extent in other things like ADHD or sensory processing disorder or whatever makes you show up in the world a little differently from what's expected. If you want to kind of get ahead in the way that's prescribed by the dominant society, if you're able to, you will usually mask. And that means that right now I'm not, you know, rocking side to side. And right now I am not making really huge gestures with my mouth, you know, which honestly right now I would be doing if I wanted to be purely authentic, but it's a little off-putting. It's a little weird. 
that's okay. So to some extent, you have to do that to kind of get along in the world the way that it's constructed. But that's not the same thing as thinking that the way you naturally are is wrong and bad. Right. And so I think it can be really important, not only as a practical strategy to calm yourself down, to use these techniques like grounding, centering, breath work, whatever. It's also useful, again, to get to a state where you feel safe to get past the mask. Some of us have been masking our whole lives. It's been decades. You don't really know who you are underneath that mask anymore because you were trained to mask as a small child. So if you can get inside and say, what do I really need in this moment? What do I really want in this moment? And then you can make that choice. Is it worth the effort? Is it worth that energy I'm going to spend in masking? Or do I really not need to do that right now? Or can I mask to a lesser degree to reduce that drain on my inner resources? Or is it actually important right now that I take off the mask to show the people I'm with that they're actually infringing on a boundary I need to keep or whatever it is. Absolutely. I think this is huge in work with any kind of neurodivergent population, as well as populations with mental health issues like anxiety or depression or you know, social phobia, things like this, which come in line with neurodivergent types. Because yeah, of course you're going to be anxious. Kids with ADHD grow up with 20,000 negative messages more than their neurotypical counterparts. So it would be weird if you weren't anxious. <laughs> it would be weird if you weren't hypervigilant. It would be weird if you didn't show up with you know, trauma symptom type behaviors in the world. Because yeah, you grew up knowing you weren't seen as being right, the right way. And sometimes I think this idea of confidence as you know, trusting yourself is trusting your worthiness to be seen and also to worthiness to receive, receive what's good. Mm. And maybe sometimes that's because we don't feel like we're putting out something that's good into the world. But if we can get to a state where we feel safe to feel what our real values are, we can see again what those ripple effects are that we could put out good into the world by being ourselves. And therefore we are worthy to receive something good from the world by being seen for what we really are. Mm. I just love all that you've said. And I encourage our listeners to back it up and listen to that again. What you said just now is very profound that many of us have learned to mask to try to fit in, but we have a choice about deciding when we want to and when we don't and how much internal resources that's going to take. And even what jobs we might take or what friends we might choose or what partner we might choose so that we do have some safe places to be completely authentic. And in those places where we can't, or it's not acceptable, that's okay too. It doesn't have to affect our sense of confidence or make us feel unworthy. We just say, okay, I'll put on the mask to make everybody more comfortable. And then I can go back to being me in this evening while watching TV. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I wish we didn't have to do that. And the more we're willing to take it off, maybe the more acceptance we can gain and you know, have to do it less and less, that's going to be a process generations, I think in the making, but, but we can but start. The, young, the younger generations are saying, no, <laughs> they're really yeah. wrong and saying, it's okay to be me. Yeah. I'm just the way I am, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think again, with uh, getting in touch with what our values truly are, it can also help us to say that kind of thing, set that kind of boundary and assert you know, you're right to show up authentically without edging into a kind of narcissistic yes. uh, way of being that, oh, well, I'm not responsible for your reaction. I can do and say whatever I want. Some things kind of get into that realm and it doesn't have to. And I think 
establishing a practice, especially in yoga, right? Where the first rule is no harm, yeah. right? From that place will come authenticity with, with kindness and with constructive interaction. Well, I think that is a beautiful place to end. Thank you, Libby, for bringing this to the forefront. I, I think many, many people struggle with self-doubt and confidence and unworthiness and feeling like it's not okay to be authentic. And I feel like what you offered us today is a really practical way to get started. And if someone wanted to work with you, do you take one-on-one -on -one clients and how could we connect with you? I do take one-to-one -one clients, limited availability, I'll say, but I do online on Zoom. I mean, could use Google Meet. Okay. I don't really have a website and that kind of thing right now, but if anyone would like to get in touch with me, they're welcome to get my email address. And one place you can get that would be the iayt.org, the Yoga Therapy Association website. And so they can look at my profile there under Elizabeth Wellness. And you can shoot me an email. I have personal accounts on Facebook and Instagram, so they wouldn't be particularly useful, you know, to anybody looking for, you know, business contact. I would say if anyone is interested in looking at kind of the, the sources of my experience and whatever knowledge I have, they should check out the people I've learned from, such as SVSA USA, Houston Center, Embodiment Unlimited, Ghost Yoga, and the Minded Institute in London. So those are really all great sources of knowledge on all this stuff. And of course, Amy Wheeler and Optimal State, but everyone knows that already. <laughs> Thank you. And what I'll try to do, I'll try to look your profile up on the IAYT website and put your exact profile link into the show notes so they can find oh, you. Thanks. That's nice. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Libby. I really appreciate that. The listeners may not know this, but first I didn't have power. Then I didn't have internet. <laughs> and then we came <laughs> back and finished it. So we have overcome some obstacles today together, and I really appreciate how beautifully you handled all of those obstacles. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. Thank you to our special guest, Libby Walness. She was so patient with the troubles we had with electricity and internet. I think we get so used to that ease of just having all of this at the tips of our fingers. And I was really grateful how beautifully she was able to go with the flow and start and stop and wait for the electricity to come back on. Sometimes after we close out the interview, the guest has something really important to say, and that happened today. So Libby was telling me about this really amazing piece of research on embodiment, and they compared yoga poses to some of you know that the TED talk by Amy Cuddy, where they put people in power poses. So you put your hands on your hips with your legs wide and you kind of stick your chest out and think good thoughts that I'm going to get this job. I'm going to nail this interview. And so they compared these two approaches and they wanted to see which one actually changed people's self-esteem because this Amy Cuddy TED talk, which I can put in the show notes, it's really famous. What Amy Cuddy is saying is that you can power pose your way into a really positive state of mind and self-esteem. Another one is like you kind of put your hands behind your head with your elbows wide and bring your chest up and you know, you're taking up more space. And so 
this Amy Cuddy research out of Harvard has been just, everybody loves it. It's been there for a really long time. But the piece of research that Libby shared with me after we got off the interview is that yoga poses did even more for one's self-esteem. And the way that they broke it down was that it seemed the yoga poses gave people a sense of control over their body or maybe even their mind versus the power poses created more of a sense of dominance and that through having a sense of control over yourself, that actually contributed better to a higher sense of self-esteem. So that is not to take anything away from Amy Cuddy's TED Talk and the research that she's done. It's actually supportive of what we're talking about in yoga and yoga therapy with embodiment, but it's really fun to see those two different techniques compared. So if you haven't yet, sign up for the free gift in the show notes, and we'll make sure to send you this study that Libby has been talking about. All right, everyone, have a great day. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. If you've enjoyed this program, there's a few things you can do to help us. You can share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family. You can give us a great rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. You can support us on Patreon, and you can download the Optimal State mobile app and start using it to track your own nervous system. All of these things will help us to produce and give you the gift of the Yoga Therapy Hour for many years to come. Thank you, our listeners, for supporting us. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.